All right, we're live. Thanks, Bo. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. It's uh, hard to believe it's August, and we are making our way through the summer. Uh, This is our Sunday morning Bible class, which uh, for the summer and probably going into fall, we are going through the book of John or the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in your New Testament. Uh, This is a high-level overview, as we've said many times. Uh, We are, in a sense, inviting you on uh, what would be in a tourist place, uh, one of those aerial tours where you get on the float plane and take off and go fly way high over Alaska. And if you're a tourist, you look down and just see things, you know, from a distance that if you lived here, you would want to, uh, to, to go and see up close places you would want to drive to or fly to or hike to uh, when you see it from an aerial view. So that's what we're doing with John. We're taking this high-level view, going through the themes of John. But the whole idea is that you come and live here for a while, that you put on the backpack and hike to some of these passages, and you spend time there, and you camp out uh, listening to what John told us about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And so we're hitting these different themes uh, throughout John. And uh, we'd like to begin each week by just seeing what reflections have you had in either reading the book of John or in uh, reflecting on certain uh, passages or even in our class through, uh, through our discussions each week. Uh, let's begin with a, just a discussion of what you're learning. I should comment just a minute. My uh, coffee shop partner in crime, uh, Tim Higman is out at family camp, as are many of our friends and neighbors today, and so uh, I'll, I'll be sitting in the coffee shop with you uh, this morning going through John. Uh, but let's pretend for a minute that this is a coffee shop, and we've come down, and we've sat down, we have our coffee, we're getting to catch up with each other. Uh, what, uh, what has struck you in our study of the book of John? Anybody willing to share something that has stood out to you? Liz. John 19. When they talk about um, Christ, even when they pierced him in the side. Yeah. And I wondered, I went back to Genesis 2 when they talked about how God put Adam, his name, and took the rib from his side and gave him a wife. Yeah. And I wondered if piercing of his side, which nailed the Old Testament to the cross, which was the church, was his bride. Yeah, thank you, Liz. I'm just going to repeat that so others hear that too. Liz says, wow, she was reading through John 19, saw the event there where we learned that Jesus' side was pierced with a spear, blood and water flowed. And in Liz's mind, uh, John took her back to Genesis when they're in Genesis 2, when God uh, creates, uh, actually takes the human being and creates another compatible human being. Uh, they're out of uh, the side of Adam. So it's this idea of side. And the beautiful thought there, Liz, is we are the bride of Christ. Is there some kind of theme or connection there? And then did you have another reflection as well? Yeah, thank you. And then Liz says the, the other reflection is in reading Jesus dying on the cross, we're 
told and given imagery that he is the Lamb of God. Remember, that's what John said earlier in John 2, and so that's an appropriate theme to catch as you're reading through John. And that took her back to recognize in the Old Testament that's exactly what was put before God, was a lamb who took away the sins of the people. Uh, and uh, there's, we'll actually be getting to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, other reflections? Stephen. John chapter 6, after the feast of 5,000, we often forget that they then tried to make him king. They were going to take him away and make him king. Jesus perceived this and left. It's the idea that they wanted a king that could provide food. They wanted a king that kind of had some power so that the Jews could be free. They really disappointed the Messiah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, Stephen mentions in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the people say, He's our man. <laughs> He'll feed us. And so they. Uh, create, in a sense, a political movement or try to initiate one. But Jesus doesn't let that happen. Uh, And that's an interesting theme that you'll see throughout John. We may even come back to that today. Thank you. Tony. Connecting John 8 to John 10, the deity chapter, John 8, and then the fact that Jesus is declaring them that I am uh, taking the life of Exodus. And then combining that with I've always been uh, the good shepherd. Yeah, Tony says it's interesting when you're reading through to connect 8 and 10 in these different chapters, and you realize in the uh, first writing of John, there were no chapters or verses. It's just one long letter. It's meant to be read from the start all the way through to the finish. And, uh, and then Tony's helping to make that connection of Jesus talking about who he is, and not just who he was, but who he is and who he will be. And uh, in making that connection. Great thought. Yes, Danny. Uh, just an observation that uh, in, in John, in chapter 20 and beginning of verse 30, we grab hold of this as his purpose for writing this whole book where it says, um, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so that that's what we seek to gain from reading this, and we're thankful for that. But it's a phrase that John liked to repeat, because if you go in first John, which he also wrote uh, a couple of places in chapter two and verse one, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And then he goes on to talk about how to be forgiven for that sin. And then again, he repeats the phrase in uh, the last chapter, verse 13, where he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So, you know, God wants us to believe, and in that find uh, salvation in Christ, uh, or in Him from Christ, from John. And then from, from these two repeated phrases in First John, He also wants us not to sin. And he wants us to know that we have eternal life, to have confidence in our salvation. Yeah, thank you, Danny. Danny takes us on a kind of a timeline of different writings of John. And I'm going to go backwards, Danny, just in repeating this. But he ends up in 1 John, where John says, Hey, I've written this book to you so that you may know that you have life into the age. Wouldn't that be great to know? Have full confidence that I have, we talked about a few weeks ago, life 
into the age. And he says, that's why I wrote this book. So if you're interested in that, the letter of 1 John, which is probably the letter we're going to go after, on, <laughs> go to after this study, uh, ends in that way. And then uh, Danny brings us back to the theme of, or he began with the theme of this gospel, which is John, more at the first of your New Testament. And the theme of this gospel is given at the end. So one of the things that you catch uh, when you read through your New Testament and you're not taking a hunt and, uh, what do you call it, a, a pecking approach where you just kind of pick a verse here and pick a verse there and look for, sometimes we, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but we tend to sometimes treat the Bible as a devotional grab bag, you know, where we just sort of grab devotional thoughts from here and there. Uh, and that's the way many people would read the Bible. But that's not the way the New Testament is written. The way the New Testament is written is as, as letters and historical documents that are all giving you the same message or the theme, which is that the Messiah is Jesus and he is very much worth following. But what you recognize as you read through these letters is that everybody seems to have, the different authors, have a different way of writing. A little different style, a little different flavor, different phrases, as Danny says, that are used that help you know that, oh, this is one of John's letters, or this is one of Paul's letters, or this is written by James, or Hebrews. We still don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we know it wasn't exactly the same as anybody else that we, that we read. But the point is, these are different people writing, but they're all inspired, meaning the Spirit of God is guiding the writing of every single one of them. And the, the unique thing about John is that he will always tell you what his letter or his book is about at the end. <laughs> and so if you didn't catch it, he'll summarize it there at the end. And that's what brings us up on the screen, and hopefully our screen will work for us today. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 30, gives us the theme of the whole gospel of John. So if you read all the way through, you eventually come to chapter 20, when John says, and I'll read it one more time, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, we've taken that theme of John, and we've uh, taken different words and different ideas and themes from this very purpose, and tried to do a deep dive. This is that high-level overview, and tried to look as we go through John, where do you see these different themes? And today, we'd like to, to zoom in and, and click, as if it's a hyperlink, on this word believe. And let's spend some time talking about a belief. When you read through the book of John, you will not find one page. In some cases, it's very hard on a page to find one paragraph that doesn't have this word believe in it. You catch the idea that this is a major theme in John. But what, is it, what does it mean to believe? We immediately, when we ask the question, what does it mean to believe, we immediately run into a problem. And that problem is that we no longer believe that the word believe means what they believed it meant when John wrote the word believe. <laughs> is, that, is that confusing enough? Uh, let's just illustrate that quickly because I think this is so important. And if you don't catch this, you'll make the, the error. It's not a fatal error, but it is a, a confusing error of actually believing when you read this word believe that it means the, the way we use the term belief nowadays. So let's talk for a minute about what does it mean when I use the term believe just in everyday language today, when I hear that word. 
me. So I said, uh, I said, it's hard to believe that it's August. Did you hear me use that? Or if I said, um, I believe it's going to rain today. Or if I say, I believe we're out of eggs. I need to stop and get some on the way home. Or if I say, I really believe in my kids. Or if I say, I, I believe the Cubs are going to win the World Series. Now I know I'm getting into wishful thinking there. Uh, but think of other. Think of other ways in which you use the word belief. And let's talk for a minute. What do we mean today in common conversation when we use the term believe? It's actually several things that it could mean. But what are some of the things that the word belief means? Let's discuss that for a moment. What do you think? So believe could mean a conviction. I'm convinced of something. Good. What else can it mean? We do, yeah. We use it as hope or wishful thinking. Yeah, that's not today's theme, but biblical hope means something very different than I hope it doesn't rain today. Yeah, that's not what the Bible's talking about with hope. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, I I think we need eggs. I believe we need eggs. Yeah, it's kind of used interchangeably with the word think. Good. Danny. Okay, cognitive domain versus affective domain. And it's interesting you bring up this line of uh, what belief could mean because we do tend to put it on this spectrum. And if I understand your comment correctly, is we tend to put it on a spectrum from knowing something for sure all the way back to maybe having an opinion about something and belief is somewhere in the middle. And very smart people have categorized things that way. In fact, uh, Plato, that was his famous... Do you remember the, the uh, allegory of the cave? Do you remember, remember uh, reading about that? Seventh grade, eighth grade, somewhere back then. They don't teach Plato anymore? No, the analogy of the cave? Well, he also had the analogy of the line. If you don't know about the cave, then the line's not going to impress you at all. But anyway, Plato basically takes a line, and he says on this line, you can put four different ways of kind of understanding something and the highest form of knowing something is to really understand it right under that on the line was to to just know it to have a kind of a cognitive understanding of it below that was pistis which is the word faith or the word believe and then down below that was something that was just to kind of see a reflection of something you might put that in the category of just eh, kind of have a notion about it or a an opinion. But anyway, he did. He put this on a spectrum. But notice, even in the ancient world, they had this category for where do you put, where do you put belief? How else do we uh, use it today? Mike, you had a comment. Okay, a belief is something that we're, we trust it to be true. Yeah, and the word trust. Can you think of an example where we use the word believe in the sense of trust? Believe it or not which was the, first, the phrase first used by. Do you know who used that first? A guy named Ripley. <laughs> Believe it or not. He actually coined that phrase. Believe it or not. Okay, I believe you. Wow, what a weight to put on somebody. Have you ever felt the weight of that when somebody says, I believe you? That's a huge gift of trust. 
Yeah, yeah, I believe they, because they have moral agency, they've proven that they can take care of this. Yeah. Yeah. Tony says the real distinction maybe today is belief is a trust, but it's in something you want to be true, but without uh, firm evidence. And that's interesting, Tony. You've been reading the Oxford Dictionary. I looked this up. Oxford Dictionary, definitive dictionary for today's modern English speakers, says that belief is any proposition that is accepted as true on the basis of inconclusive evidence. You're exactly right. Isn't that interesting? That's how it's used. Now, guess what the word belief did not mean to the writers of the Old Testament? It did not mean uh, holding to a proposition as true on the basis of inconclusive evidence. It was actually the opposite. To believe something was a proposition that is accepted as true on the basis of firm and convincing evidence. That's what it meant to have faith or to put your trust in something. It was not in spite of a lack of evidence, but because you had seen the evidence. Let me give you some examples of that uh, because I think this is important when you get to John. It's important to know what John had in mind. Whenever you see this word belief, the, what it has to be a thousand times, you run across it in John. But let's go to Exodus, and I'm just going to give you some examples here of the way it's used in the Old Testament. Exodus. Do you know how to spell Exodus? 17, verse 12. So background story here, the Israelites are making their way across the wilderness, and while they're in the wilderness, there are these other kings that don't like this massive group of a million people moving through their land so they will attack the Israelites and so there's this big fight where Amalek is attacking the Israelites at Rephidim I think is where the attack occurs Moses sends Joshua out and says take the army and go attack these people who are attacking us and so imagine in the valley there's this big battle going on and Moses says I will stand up on the hill and I'll hold up that staff you know, that God has used many times to uh, direct the people and protect the people through the wilderness. He says, I'll hold up that staff while you're fighting. And sure enough, he does. And when Moses has the staff held up, the Israelites are winning. But that's hard to do. Have you ever tried to hold your arms up very long? And so Moses, like anybody else, his arms start waning. And sometimes he just has to go, oh, I need to stretch. But every time he lets the staff down, the Israelites start losing. So do you get the image? going back and forth. So how do, how do you solve that problem? Uh, verse 12, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, so he sat down on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side and the other on the other side, so that his hands were, do you see this word? Steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people by the sword. They won. Well, that word steady, guess what that word is? The word in Hebrew is immunah, and you don't have to remember that, but just remember that that word means firm, uh, unmoving, uh, held up. 
And that word immunah sounds a lot like another word that we use. Let me give you another example of where this word shows up in the Old Testament. Just in the background where you wouldn't notice, if you look at 2 Kings 18, verse 16. Um, this is, now we've gone to a time where Israel is under, so they've already made it into the land, they're under the time of the kings, and one of the great kings, one of the few kings that got an A+, plus in terms of turning to God, is Hezekiah. Uh, But Hezekiah made a political mistake, and he made uh, the Assyrian king mad, and so the Assyrian king was coming to attack him. And so Hezekiah decided to pay some tribute, and I won't get into the whole story except to say that's what brings us to verse 16, where it says, at that time, Hezekiah, in order to pay this tribute, stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Well, guess what this word doorposts is? It's again this word, immunah, which means something solid on either side of the door that holds something up. Now, if you understand what that's like, something that is uh, firm and holding up something else that is trustworthy, then you'll understand when this word shows up again, and uh, because our time's short, I'm just going to skip to Genesis 15. And let's go to this point where now we're going way back earlier in the story where God is talking to Abraham. And God, you remember, made a promise to Abraham that through his, his line, all the world is going to be blessed. And God says to him, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward uh, will be great. But Abraham said, or Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, before I get to the last line, imagine the scene. You've gone outside. It's one of those dark nights. There's no light pollution. You see all these stars. And God says to Abraham, go ahead and start numbering them. I have time. Go ahead. If you can. He says, Abram, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And what does it say next? When Abram looked up and saw all those stars, it says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And guess what the word is for believe there? Instead of immuna, it's amen. But it comes from the same root. It's the same idea. It's this word that means Abraham had a firm holding up of God, a belief or a trust in the truth of a proposition because of what he saw that God did. This was a firm conviction in the truth of something. Uh, And that's what Abraham believed. There's a question. Uh, maybe afterwards uh, we'll get into that because that is a that's a fun side trail you know certainly going what's the significance of an object you know in the uh, use but 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the question is, and it's a good question, is what's the significance of the staff, which gets to a bigger question. What is the significance of any object that is used by God or through which God affects his will? And I'm, feel free to catch me afterwards. We'll go into the detail of that because I don't want to distract from this point, which is what does it mean that Abraham believed God? Was it that he just made a, a wishful decision? without a lot of evidence. This is what I want to be true, so I'm going to believe that. Was it a belief in spite of not having evidence? Was it wishful thinking? Or was it this word, amen? Do you know what word we get from iman? It's the most recognized religious word in the entire world. It's what? Amen. Can I get an amen? (laughs) That word, amen, that you hear at the end of prayers oftentimes used, it actually means firm conviction that this is true. (laughs) May it be. And that's what it means here. When Abraham, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as if he had done everything just right. Well, the reason I show you these examples is is simply to say, when you get to John and you start seeing this word believe, realize that what is being described for you is what the word belief meant all the way back. I told you what it meant in the Oxford Dictionary. But when the Bible was first translated into English by a guy named Tyndale, the the reason he chose the word believe is because in Old English, back in 1534, uh, the word meant to have confidence in, a firm conviction. And so of all the words he could pick in English that fit, it was the word believe. But that's changed over time. And this is where you have to be careful. But if you understand that the word belief in Scripture, when it's translated that way, means a firm conviction in the truth of something, then it will make sense when we get back to, let's go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, or he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is John the Baptist, not, not John who's writing the book. So he's telling us about John the Baptist, and he says, This one, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now you know what that word belief means, that all might have a firm conviction in the truth of God. He, meaning John, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, we talked about this last week, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, namely those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So this sets in course or in motion throughout the book of John, this theme that for those who entrust themselves or who put a full firm confidence in the truth that the Messiah is Jesus and entrust themselves to that, uh, they gain access to Life, And that's what, remember, we read as a theme at the end. These things are written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's your bookends, one side and the other. And then every single page of the book of John, as you turn, you're going to see this word believe. And I hope from now on, this is one of those words that just jumps off the page as, as if it were highlighted and is inviting you to click and say, what does this, what does this mean? Let me give you a few examples, and then we'll end our discussion with what is this, how does this apply to us uh, in our, our lives each day? As you read through John, you're going to see many different examples of amazing things that Jesus did. He's going to say some crazy things, some things that are unbelievable, and then he'll do something that's undeniable. And every time that one of these, uh, these signs is performed, afterwards, we are told by John how people reacted. And in so many cases, what Jesus did led to at least someone believing. Let me give you a few examples. <clears throat> John chapter 2, Jesus turns water to wine. And in John 2, 11, after he turns the water to wine, uh, John says, and his disciples believed in him. Do you hear what he's saying? They put their firm conviction in him. They entrusted themselves to him. <clears throat> now, is that a real alarm or is that? <laughs> That's a cool, I should put that as a phone because that just says, I'm sorry, I have something more important. I need to <laughs> clear the uh, second, where were we? Water to wine. Oh, uh, there in two, uh, Jesus clears the temple which you may not think of as a miraculous kind of sign, but that's a pretty clear sign that he's taking control of things. And then afterwards, uh, his disciples, you remember when he cleared the temple, uh, he gets into a conversation about how they can destroy this temple and he'll raise it in three days. And they realize later he's talking about himself. And it says that uh, after he said this, the disciples remembered that he had said this later and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And then talking to Nicodemus in John chapter uh, three. That's where we get the line that most of you probably would recognize from John. John 3.16 comes out of that conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever might believe in him would not perish but have life into the age. Uh, there's a woman at the well, and Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well. And, and you, we've already talked about how that conversation just expands and explodes. Her life totally changed. She goes back to town, invites others to come and be with Jesus. And at the end of that, we're told, and many more believed because of his word when they met Jesus. Then there's the healing of the paralyzed man in John 5. That uh, leads to a long conversation about who Jesus is and whether or not he is worth believing in. And Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Then in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, which we mentioned earlier. Feeds 5,000 plus women and children, so it could have been up to 15,000 people get fed that day. And the people afterwards said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They had a firm conviction that this is the prophet. Had a total misunderstanding of what he was really up to, but they put their conviction in him. Although it was a, we might say, a wavering conviction because many of them end up leaving when he says, all right, if you're in on this, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Full commitment. And many people left. 
And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do you want to leave me too? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. A firm conviction that you are him. Then there's the healing of the blind man. And there's a humorous uh, scene at the end of that time. Remember, Jesus came across the blind man. He puts mud on his eyes, sends him off. The man goes, washes, and he comes home seeing. And then there's a big conversation with the Pharisees and the leaders, the religious leaders at the time about, you know, is this okay? Can this be done on the Sabbath? Does he really know who Jesus is? But it's later in that story that the man comes back and meets Jesus. What's humorous, and you're meant to catch this, is at this point, Jesus walks up to the man and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you remember what the previously blind man said? He said, who is he, sir? Translated, I've never seen him. (laughs) And there's Jesus standing in front of him. And Jesus says, it's the one standing before you. And do you remember the blind man's answer? Lord, I believe. (laughs) And you're meant to catch that. And then there's the raising of Lazarus. And you remember Jesus standing there before the tomb of Lazarus is talking to Martha and says, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And Martha says, I know he's going to rise at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus leans forward. I just imagine him looking her in the eyes and saying, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asks Martha the question, which John records because the question is for you too. When Jesus asks, do you believe this? He's not asking for wishful thinking. He's asking, are you willing to entrust yourself to this with a firm conviction that this is true, that whoever entrusts themselves to Jesus will never die? Well, notice how each of those are connected to these signs. So Jesus does a sign, and then there's the reaction. Uh, some believe, some do not believe, uh, and, and, uh, and end up going away. And John takes us all the way through. If you split John up, some scholars say that John is split into two books. The first is the book of signs, takes you through chapter 12. And then after that is what we call the book of glory, where now we're going into the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus is being glorified. But as you go through that second half of John, John takes us all the way up to the death of Jesus. There's at first this beautiful scene where Jesus, before his death, is praying. You'll read this in John 17, and we'll spend one week probably going through the prayer Jesus prays because we get to see what is it like. We get to sit with the disciples and hear what it's like when Jesus says, let me pray for you. And in that prayer, Jesus begins by praying for basically himself and what's about to happen, and then he prays for those disciples who are sitting there in front of them. But then towards the end of that prayer, Jesus uh, prays for He says, those whom these disciples will eventually teach. And Jesus puts it this way, John 17, 20. Oh, I should put it on the screen. I forgot I have it here. This is so beautiful. It's worth seeing. So Jesus says, I do not ask only for these who are in front of me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And notice what he says. I'm praying for those people who one day will have this firm conviction through 
what these disciples pass along and teach, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Anyway, we'll go into detail in that prayer later, but I wanted you to catch this time, even when Jesus is praying, he prays for those who are in front of him and then prays for those who will believe because of what they tell others. And then he prays for you because you're in that group and says Jesus' prayer is that today when we come together to worship him, when we go about our lives even this week, Jesus' prayer all the way from the beginning was not only that we would have this firm conviction in him as the Messiah who's making the world right again, but that we would be one, meaning that we would have this relationship with God that is identical to his relationship, that it's a, it's a sense of oneness. And so do you realize today, as we're sitting here and coming together, we are, we are an answer to Jesus's prayer. And especially true for those of you who believe who have a firm conviction that he is the Messiah. Well, John takes us from that prayer, and then we go through the series of events that lead to Jesus' death. And I won't pull this on the screen, but Liz, you mentioned earlier, when you come to John 19, we're given this graphic depiction of what it was like to be crucified. And there at the end, when Jesus has died, there's a spear that is struck into his side, and then there blood and water flows. And John says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. And, and so sometimes this word belief in John is used to say, I want to give you a firm conviction in the fact that Jesus was, in fact, dead. His body was lifeless. And so John says, that is something that you have to believe because the central core of the message is that he didn't stay dead. And that's where you go next. To the, the, the story gets really grim and dark, but then you turn over to John chapter 20, and now the tomb is empty and the, uh, first the, you know, the women show up at the tomb and, uh, and then they run back to the disciples and say, we've seen the Lord. And, and then the disciples run to see Jesus, or excuse me, run to see the tomb. And uh, there's a funny scene here where John and Peter are running to the tomb and John tells you, I got there first. <laughs> he just says, I want to make sure for all those reading this in the future, I got there first. But Peter, the impetuous one, just runs straight in. And then John looks in and he says, they looked in and they, uh, the, and it says then, this is John 28, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. Again, suddenly had this firm conviction in the truth of Jesus coming back from the dead. And then I, I wanted to close before we have just a few moments to, reflect on this. Let's go to John 20. Verse 27. So in John 20, now we are getting close to the end of the book. And just to bring you to the scene that we're about to read, Jesus has appeared to the women. He's appeared to, uh, to several of the disciples uh, in a room. He's uh, appeared to actually many of the disciples at the time. But one of the disciples who was not there when Jesus appeared to them was Thomas. And Thomas is the, the one who... You've got to read this part. So now Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came and appeared. 
in his resurrected form. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Seeing is believing. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, or peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now we're not told if Thomas actually reached out and touched the hands or side. At this point, he didn't have to. (laughs) Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed. The same word blessed that you hear in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who, blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have a firm conviction in the truth of what you're witnessing. And guess who he's talking about there? That's you. And that's why the very next verse is John giving you the purpose of the whole book saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you, who were not here to actually see the initial events, may believe that the Messiah is Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, I hope next time you read through John, you see all of these hyperlinks to believe. But let's take the last just two minutes here and uh, open it up for just reflections. What happens in the life of someone who comes to believe the way uh, John means when he uses the term belief here? What happens in the life of someone who has a firm conviction in the truth that Jesus is the one making the world right again? Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, very well said. That having, having, uh, adding to our faith this idea of knowledge improves the faith, the the firm conviction. Yeah, well said. Transformation. Transformation. That's what happens. You're saying in a life, yeah. and you've heard us say that before. That when you read through John, this is not about the application of the book of John. It's about the transformation. It's not about the application. It's about the transformation. I think we're going to make a button or something. It seems like I read John. It's about the transformation. Yes. So in this world, we have a lot of things happening all the time. This, this, that, that, this, this, Christ here, Christ there, Christ here, all the stuff here. We have this firm belief. Whatever's happening in this world, at least for my I've become a little bit less concerned about whatever's currently happening because I know the long term. Wow. Yeah, Pat says this very well, much better than I could, even using his hands. Says, there's all this noise, all these things happening around me, but when I have a firm conviction in the truth of something, I, I can hear through all that noise what is true, what is real, 
and that allows these other things not to carry the same weight. Not to say that things we deal with each day aren't important. I don't think that's what you're saying. But what you are saying is it helps us see what's really important, and that helps order how we manage all of the things around us. Sorry you turned that into a sermon in my mind. That's <laughs> such a great thought. Yes? I think we might have to understand the word believe with caution. In today's society, the interpretation of what you believe is based on how one feels or what one's, one sees or understands. Mm-hmm. For example, police officers questioning you about an accident that you saw, a hit and run. What color was the car you saw? Black, or maybe black. Um, no, I believe it was a dark, maybe blue. Now there are two misbeliefs. You don't remember what you believe. The cop doesn't believe you either. Yeah, yeah. So we have to be careful in understanding the interpretation of belief. And I think that's a great conclusion for our class today. At Glenn's point there is well taken, and that is. You have to be really careful by what we mean by the word believe uh, because there's monarch connotations for that. But now you know what it means in John. So when you're reading through John and every time you see that word belief, feel the weight of that firm conviction. Imagine Moses hang, you know, holding somebody holding up his arms and realize that John's holding up your arms here saying this is something you can have firm firm confidence in. Well, that brings us into the class today. May God bless the reading of his word and our desire to put it into practice. And as we transition to worship now, we'll ask for him to come and be here with us. Thank you.